0: We're going to read to the 16th verse in chapter 15. It says, Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you can cast off fear, And restrain prayer before God? For your iniquity teaches your mouth, and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you, and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us. See, you are in the Bible. No, I'm just teasing. Much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And with the word spoken gently with you? And why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at, that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is man that he could be pure, and he who is born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints, and the heavens are not pure in his sight, How much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. In chapter 13 and 14, remember Job gave his speech and you'll remember that he was hanging on by a thread. Remember, everything has been taken away from Job. And now Job's So-called friends and so-called comforters are anything but comforters. There's a new set of criticisms and a new set of denunciations. And in the next chapter, Job will make a new defense. Once again, their stinging accusations will test Job's resolve. What does he have left? Remember, he's holding on by a very thin thread. What does he have left? His trust, his integrity, his view of reality. And if you remember Eliphaz the Temanite, he's the elder statesman in the group. He is what I would call the voice of experience. He comes from the school of ancient wisdom, which puts a premium on age and experience. And so he appeals to his age and his experience. And once again, Eliphaz will accuse Job of acting like a fool instead of wise in verses 1 through 16. And then that Job's sufferings are somehow related to a secret sin in verses 17 through 35. Eliphaz demands that Job face up to the fact, although there really is no fact, that Job was full of empty and hollow ramblings in verses 1 through 3. That Job's assertions really undermined people's faith. And that Job was leading people astray with his arguments in verse 4. That Eliphaz asserts that Job's speech is guided by sin in verses 5 and 6. That Job is acting in arrogance in verses 7 through 9. That Job won't receive God's comfort in the form of gentle words because his friends have given him gentle words but they really haven't in verse 11. That he's turned away from God in verses 12 through 13, and that Job is guilty of sin no matter how much Job protests in verses 14 through 16. And Eliphaz points and pounds the point home. He begs Job to listen, that God judges the wicked in verses 7 through 19. Or 17 through 19. And that Eliphaz will then give a picture of the fate of the wicked individual. And he's doing so in the hopes that Job will change his mind. You see, the pretense is gone. He's not there to comfort him any longer. He is there to try to convince Job... That Job can't be right. You see what he's trying to do is hold on to his view of God and to his way of thinking. Look at verse 1 again. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? The elder statesman calls Job's knowledge empty. And that Job's speech, when he calls it the east wind, he's actually thinking of the hot wind that blows in the desert that is sometimes found inside of your stomach when you've had maybe a little bit too much carne adovada, too many burritos. Too much Mexican food and all of a sudden gas starts to form in your intestinal tract, in your stomach. And it's trying to make its way out of your esophagus and through your mouth. If you're thinking the word belch, that's exactly what this means. He's saying, Job, you're blowing hot air. In the first speech, there was some measure of courtesy and civility. All of that is gone. Eliphaz is going to match sarcasm with sarcasm. He is going to rebuke Job. He's basically saying, who do you think you are? Who are you to reject the wisdom of God? Who are you to resist the majesty of God? And it sounds good on the surface. But remember what he believes with all of his heart. He believes that God rewards the innocent and punishes the unrighteous. He's trying to make sense of Job's circumstances. And in verse 3 it says, should he reason with unprofitable talk? In other words, referring to Job's speech as not helpful. Or by speeches which can do no good yes you cast off fear in what sense remember he's maintaining his integrity and and he is being accused now of saying stuff with his mouth that he doesn't really believe in his heart he's in verse 5 he says for your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty your own mouth condemns you and not i yes your own lips testify against you Are you the first man who was ever born or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we don't know? What do you understand that is not already in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. I think Eliphaz is speaking about himself. He is one of those people who is no doubt the oldest person there. He is also no doubt older than Job's father. So he's in effect saying, don't you know, don't you realize I'm old enough to be your father? Now, if anyone has ever said to you, don't you know I'm old enough to be your father? Or I'm old enough to be your mother? Or I'm old enough to be whatever? What are they basically trying to do? To tell you that age and experience has given them insights that you couldn't possibly possess. And by the way, is that sometimes true? Does age and experience sometimes inform people's circumstances? And the answer is yes. But does age and experience ensure truth? The answer is no. No. Eliphaz is unkind, and his speech is meant to silence Job's protests and his claims of innocence. And so what he does, he doesn't argue the facts. He insults Job. He speaks of Job's words as useless talk, not profitable, irreverent. Eliphaz suggests that Job is actually causing others to stumble. Who, in fact, is he causing to stumble? Remember what Job is saying. Job is saying, hey, guess what? I have lost my family. I have lost my job. I have lost my health and my wealth. And has he done anything to deserve that? The answer is no. And again, remember, remember the revelation that has already been given to us in chapter one and chapter two. I keep repeating it every single week. God from heaven points to Job and he says, Is there anyone on the whole earth like my pal Job? That there's none like him, that he's honorable and righteous. Now, remember what Eliphaz and his friends believe God punishes the wicked, God rewards the righteous. Job is being punished, therefore, he is unrighteous. Eliphaz implies that Job is guilty of sin, that Job is getting what he deserves. He accuses Job of being crafty, that is, acting in a sneaky and underminded manner instead of confessing his hidden sin. In other words, he's accusing him of deceit. He's saying, you're lying, you're withholding the truth. There really is something really wrong with you, is what he's basically saying. And so Eliphaz condemns Job. Eliphaz suggests that Job thinks he's better than they are. That he presumes his own wisdom and his own words reveal that he is at least a little envious of Job's close personal, blessed relationship with the Lord. And now he's finally letting Job understand how he really feels in verses 7 and 8 and 9. In verse 11, he basically says, Are the consolations of God too small for you? In other words, it's his way of saying, Are you refusing to be comforted by God? And look, and the word gently spoken with you? (laughs) Anyone who's actually read the chapters between chapters 1 and 12 and they hear the speeches of his friends, gentle is not the word that I would use to describe their criticism, their accusations. Their insensitivities. Eliphaz will use sarcasm and harsh words to lash out at Job. Eliphaz, and this is important, he sees himself as God's messenger. Sent to give Job the advice he desperately needed to hear. And again, maybe you've experienced that in your life. Where where well-meaning, so-called well-meaning said, look, I have something that I need to tell you. I have something that I need to say to you. Okay? No, it's it's more than that. It's, it's more than that. You see, God sent me to you to tell you this. Well, see, we laugh, but that's a fairly large claim, isn't it? And can you imagine if someone says that to you? God sent me to you with a message, and it's not true. Especially... If the message goes something like this, God hates you and would like to see you dead. And you go, that wasn't the message that I was hoping for. In verse 12 he says, why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at? That means, why are you still living a life of self-deception? When he says, why does your heart carry you away? And why do your eyes wink at that? In other words, you refuse to look at what you don't want to see. You'll see what you want to see, but you won't see what you don't want to see. Verse 13, that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth. What are the words out of Job's mouth? I have no idea what I've done. I have no idea. Remember he says. I'm not guilty of any known sin. Or any gross sin. I've tried my very very level best. To love the Lord. And pray to the Lord. And serve the Lord. And pray for my children. And sacrifice for them. And to make the world a better place to live in. Eliphaz repeats his message. In verses four. 17 through 19 on the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man he basically says in verse 15 if God puts no trust well actually let's begin in verse 13 that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth what is man that he should be pure and who is born of a woman that he could be righteous in other words here's what he's basically saying Human beings are wicked, they are corrupt, they are sinful through and through. That's basically a true message. So if anyone has anything going for them whatsoever, if anyone has anything going for them whatsoever, it has to be on the basis of what God says and does. And so again, it begs the question that we all ask. (laughs) What do you have to do and what do you have to be to have a right relationship with God? How is it that you can be accepted by God? How can you be loved by God and honored by God and being guided by the Lord? And the Lord says, if you're going to do it, you're going to have to do it by faith. And you're going to have to trust that he's a good God. And that he has a plan and a purpose. And that he will strengthen you for the task at hand. And so Eliphaz says, if God puts no trust in his saints, remember, these are the people who are separated and the heavens are not pure in his sight. In other words, he compares the holiness of God with the physical universe in which we live in. He says, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drink iniquity like water. In other words, Eliphaz is basically saying, say whatever you want, Job, but I know that there's something really wrong with you. But again, it's the dilemma of every saint. It's the dilemma of every Christian. You see, you have family, friends, people, neighbors, people watching you. And they say, look, I I notice that you go to church, and I notice that you have a Bible, and I notice you claim that God is your friend. How is it that you're any different from me? Because I notice that you're not a particularly good person there used to be a bumper sticker that said not perfect just forgiven we we know that we're not perfect but we do know that we are forgiven on the basis of the sacrifice of Jesus we understand that whatever forgiveness that we have whatever goodness that we have whatever that will commend us to God, we understand that that commendation comes because of the sacrifice of Jesus. William MacDonald writes, quote, But how is Job any more sinful than Eliphaz? MacDonald then quotes right out, quote, Why then apply it to Job as though it proved him a sinner above all things or all others? This surely is more like crafty speech than all the hot utterances of Job let Eliphaz take the place beside his place beside Job and confess that he too is abominable and filthy the poor sufferer might have responded to that now think about what they're saying in verse 16 when Eliphaz says how much less man who is abominable and filthy is Eliphaz condemning himself by his own words If Job, he's accusing of being abominable and filthy, and if all people are abominable and filthy, does that exclude Eliphaz who's making the speech? Do you understand the reasoning, what's happening? In other words, Eliphaz is accusing Job of all of the things that he's guilty of. That's the point. But Aliphaz is is reluctant to really, really latch on to even his own speech. Look what it says in verse 17. Be willing to listen to the experience of the wise. And I'm going to read verses 17 through 19. He says, I will tell you, hear me. What I have seen, I will declare. What wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers, Verse 19, to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. Eliphaz begs Job to listen to him. And again, he says, look, I need you to listen to me. And then he appeals to his experience and to the teaching of the ancients. That means the people from from the past. Eliphaz is in effect saying, look, listen to me. Learn to from what I have seen, learn from what I have experienced. Again, one Bible commentator writes, quote, Eliphaz had apparently lived a long life filled with a broad range of experiences. Therefore, he believed he had made some wise observations He wanted Job to listen to his voice of experience and also to the wisdom of men who had been taught by their fathers and forefathers. Job especially needed to listen to those to whom God had first given the land, that is, those who lived in the land before. Strangers, foreigners, and unbelievers arrived. In this statement, Eliphaz was appealing to ancient wisdom, specifically to pure or incorrupt teaching, teaching not distorted by godless men or foreigners. Now, let me help you understand what what that means. Eliphaz is basically saying, what I believe and what these other guys believe is what everyone has always believed. Job. God blesses the righteous and the innocent. And he punishes the wicked and the guilty. You're being punished. Therefore, you are wicked and guilty. Now remember what God said at the beginning of the book of Job. Have you considered my servant Job that there's none like him? That he's the most righteous man in the whole world. The reason why this becomes so important is because there are going to be people who are going to tell you things and they're going to claim that it's ancient wisdom that this is the way that human beings have always thought and they've always believed that people will always say stuff like look, if you don't watch out for yourself who will watch out for you? If you don't take care of yourself who will take care of you? If you don't go for the gusto and if you don't grab what belongs to you if you don't take what belongs to you nobody's going to give it to you. And they'll say things. The Bible is a nice book, but you can't trust everything that it says. Jesus is a pleasant and important and historical person. But don't let this whole gospel business go to your head. You see, the world is always going to be placed in two broad categories the revelation of God that's been given by God in the Bible and through the person of Jesus Christ and everyone else's opinion. Eliphaz relates once again the reasons for Job's misery and loss and anguish. And hopefully as you're reading it, you should be stunned by his utter lack of grace. And you should also be informed that if ever you find a person in difficulty, if ever you find a person in tragedy, if you ever you find a person who's experiencing pain and loss and difficulty, you need to be careful what you say. And you need to be careful how you say it. By the way, the presence of sarcasm is often a poor excuse for biblical principles or gracious words. This is why the New Testament says, Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth, but such as is good for edification or encouragement. It's the biblical reference for, for what your mom told you ever since you were a child. If you don't have something nice to say... You Yes, some of you listen to your mom or your grandma. And so now he talks about the destiny of the wicked. Again, look at Eliphaz and listen to these stinging words. In verse 20 it says, The wicked man writhes with pain all his days. And the number of years is... Hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, Where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle, for he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield, though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat. He dwells in desolate cities, in houses which no one inhabits, Which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine, and cast off his blossom like an olive tree. For the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. Eliphaz is going to list an impressive catalog. Of troubles that overtake the wicked. The troubles or the calamities. And remember what Eliphaz's speech is doing. He's saying, you know what? You only get what you give. You're only sowing You sow and you reap. Now, again, is it a biblical principle that what you sow, that also you will reap? It is true. But is it always true that a person's pain, a person's suffering, a person's loss, a person's tragedy has something to do with something that they've done? That's part of the point of Job. It it is, no, actually, that's not true. That there's a sovereign God who allows certain things and disallows other things. And so when, remember, 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 keep in mind Eliphaz believes that the wicked always suffer. The innocent are always blessed. And so he gives this speech, this catalog. And there are 11 things that I want to draw your attention to. Number one. The wicked suffer pain and torment all of their lives. Verse 20, the wicked man writhes with pain all of his days. It's his way of saying, hey, if you're wicked, guess what? Expect to be in a lot of pain and and expect a lot of problems. Now, is there a certain truth to that? The Bible says that the way of the transgressor is hard. And that if you do live a life of wickedness and disobedience and rebellion, guess what? It's going to be hard. So Eliphaz goes, hey, look, the wicked suffer pain and torment. He makes the claim that this has been his experience. Eliphaz is basically saying, look, look around you. If a person lives with a drug addiction or an alcohol addiction or a pornography addiction, if they give into whatever their lusts or desires are, if they don't finish school and if they drop out, are the chances are things are going to go bad. Well, yeah, again, there's a certain truth to this. Does Eliphaz's claim sound noble? Well, it does on the surface. Is the observation true to a certain extent? And this becomes the challenge because it's not entirely true. Do you understand it's not entirely true? Have you ever seen someone good who was in a car accident? Have you ever seen someone who was a straight-A student and who all of a sudden they go to school and they become a victim of a school shooting? Is it possible that you can be noble and true and you can go to church and love God and pray every single day and something horrible and terrible happens? So, did Eliphaz ever see someone noble or true experience difficulty? Did Eliphaz ever see a corrupt official prosper? Did he ever see a greedy businessman benefit from his his greed? Question, do the people who are wicked sometimes get away with it? Yeah, the answer seems to be yes. And that's the part that Eliphaz leaves out of the speech the real world is filled with examples that contradict what Eliphaz is saying. And so in verse 21, it says, dreadful sounds are in his ears. Do you know what that means? Dreadful sounds are in his ears. This is before medical marijuana was legal and before recreational medical marijuana was legal. People who would often imbibe in marijuana would imbibing marijuana, and they go, did you hear that? Did you? Did you hear that? Here's the idea. They're full of anxiety. Put it out. Somebody's going to catch us. In other words, there's this constant fear There's this constant anxiety that the wicked experience. The the constant anxiety of the wicked is that they could lose everything in an instant. There could be a calamity. There could be a downturn in the economy. There could be an accident or an illness. Sometimes the wicked are like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. Do you remember Eeyore? You go, we're all gonna die. It's the thought that Whatever is bad, whatever is horrible, whatever is terrifying, that's what's going to happen. Eliphaz points out that they're terrified by the sounds of the attackers. Suddenly, when everything seems to be going smooth, when everything seems to be going good, there is the screeching of brakes and you can hear the person crashing into you from behind. You know, have you ever been driving, minding your own business, trying to just go from point A to point B? You're at a stoplight. You look in your rearview mirror and the person isn't going to stop. And you're thinking, this is not what I signed up for today. To get rear-ended. The reference in verse 21, trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him. Well, actually, in verse 21, where it says, Dreadful sounds are in the ears, in prosperity, the destroyer comes upon them. The reference that Eliphaz makes is intended to cause Job to think about his own terrible loss, the loss of his children. Remember, his servants had been attacked by the Chaldeans and the Sabaeans. Bands of thieves had stolen his livestock and killed his servants. And the stinging, hurtful words would not have been lost on Job. But he was innocent. But the words are intended to hurt him. To cause him pain. And at the end of verse 22, the wicked have no hope, that's number three, of escaping the darkness of death or the violence of the sword. At the end of verse 22, after all, if you live by the sword, you're gonna die by the sword. The wicked are helpless and lost and subject to deception and greed or being consumed by the greedy or those who oppress in the world. In addition, the wicked are aware of the nearness of their death. They wait helplessly for death while they see the vultures overhead, ready to consume whatever wealth is left. And it would seem that Eliphaz feared that Job might die and have to face God and that he has unconfessed sin in his life. And this is maybe the most noble way... Of thinking about the passage, giving Eliphaz at least the one tiny benefit of the doubt. Is it possible that Eliphaz is thinking, Job, Job, unless you come away to my way of thinking, unless you're willing to give up your your trust and your integrity, unless you're willing to admit that there's something horribly and terribly wrong, you're going to die and you're going to face God and you're going to have this unconfessed sin on your conscience. Maybe. In verse 4, or number 4, in verse 23, it says, He wanders about for bread saying, where is it? The idea being the wicked wander around helpless and aimless through life. In other words, the picture is a person who lives just for food, just for bread. The idea being you get up in the morning and you're trying to make enough money in order to buy enough food in order to stay alive. But all the while, the vultures are circling around you. That The wicked are helpless and lost. They are deceived and deceiving others. The The wicked are aware. That death is just right around the corner. Why do you work? So I can have money. Why do you want money? So I can buy food. Why do you have, want food? So I can eat. Why do you want to eat? So, you, so I can stay alive. Their whole life is a circle of desperately trying to stay alive. And then Eliphaz in verses 24 and 25 and 26, look what it says. For he wanders about for bread, verse 23. He knows that a day of darkness is already at hand, verse 24. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle, verse 25. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Number five, the wicked are troubled and live in anguish, their fears overwhelming them. The wicked have defied and placed themselves and elevated themselves in the place of God. They attack and challenge God like soldiers in battle. But it is a fight that they can't win because the wicked are gripped by fear. And just like the king is fearful right before he goes out to battle, so the wicked are afraid because of the dark day that's coming. And so in the same way... Eliphaz is saying that Job's attitude and Job's refusal to confess his sin were a direct challenge to God, a full frontal attack against the Almighty. You see, you need to understand what's happening. Eliphaz is accusing Job of offending God. Is it true? Yeah, see, that's the problem. God isn't offended by Job. God is pleased with Job. Now imagine someone says to you, God's offended by you. One of two things is true. He is offended by you. Or he isn't. How can you know that? How can you know the answer whether or not God is offended with you? Of course the answer is found in the Bible. The Bible says that in Christ... You're chosen, adopted, accepted in the beginning of Ephesians. In the book of Colossians, there is that amazing statement that's made. Oh, I'm going to turn there. This is what happens when I depart from my notes. Here we go. Yes, remember, giants eat peas and corn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Yes, yeah, see, it still works. In Colossians chapter 1, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, speaking of the sacrifice of Jesus, to present you, Colossians chapter 1 verse 22, to present you holy and blameless, And above reproach in his sight. Paul says that if you are in Christ, you are holy, blameless, above reproach in his sight. And so, the sixth thing is that the wicked are destined to lose all that they have due to self-indulgence in verses 27, 28, and 29. Though he has covered his face with fatness. This is self-indulgence. When it says he's covered his face with fatness, it doesn't mean he's taken a big jar of lard and he's put bacon grease all over his face and made his waist heavy with fat. This isn't like a tryout for the biggest loser. In those days, fatness was a, a type And a picture, if you will, of self-indulgence and prosperity. That was the idea. And so that's the point that Eliphaz is making. The wicked are destined to lose all that they have because of their self-indulgence. Notice Eliphaz's direct reference to Job. Job was healthy. Job was wealthy. I don't know if he was skinny. But he lost everything. So Eliphaz pointed out that the person who's well off, he equates the fat with the greedy and the self-indulgent. That they'll lose everything. They'll lose houses. They'll lose cities. They'll lose riches. They'll lose wealth. They'll lose their possessions. And the implication couldn't have been more direct. Eliphaz's speech is meant to harm Job. And number seven, the wicked man will not escape the darkness of death. Again in verse 30, again in verses 22 and 23. um, He dies like a withered tree by the breath of God. The breath or the wind of God will carry him away. The implication being that God's breath blows. And again, like the wind carries the leaf. The reality and the sovereignty and the majesty of God will carry the person into whatever world awaits them. And of course, the language would have reminded Job of the hot, blowing winds and the sands of the desert. It would have reminded Job, remember in the first two chapters, of the terrible wind that came, that crushing wind that caused the collapse of the house that killed his children... Eliphaz is doing everything that he can to force Job to consider the urgency of his hour that he needed to repent and that he needed to repent right at that very moment. That he couldn't afford to let one more moment go by. And number eight, the wicked trust in empty, worthless things In verse 29, it says, He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. Verse 30, He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Verse 31, Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. Eliphaz rightly says, the wicked trust in that which is empty and that which is worthless. And because of all of the things that Job had lost, Eliphaz presumes or assumes that Job had been trusting in his wealth. By the way, is that true? Did Job trust his wealth? The answer is no. He, he wasn't. He was grateful to God. He was prospered by God. But there's nothing in the text that would lead us to believe that he he trusted his wealth. What did he trust? Job trusted his innocence, didn't he? And his integrity, didn't he? Job trusted his innocence and his integrity. And in the view of Eliphaz, both his integrity, innocence, and his wealth were both false. Both vain. Neither true. You know why? Because Eliphaz believes with all of his heart that Job is guilty. That God rewards the righteous and punishes the wicked. Do you remember what I said earlier? The pretense of comfort is off. Number nine, the wicked will die before their time and be paid in full for their for their wickedness. That's verses thirty-two and thirty-three. Look what it says. It will be accomplished in verse thirty-two, before his time, and his branch will not be green. It's a poetic way of saying the wicked die before their time. Now again, Eliphaz assumes that Job is reaping what he will sow. Remember, Job is very, very ill. That he's hanging on to life every single moment of every single day. Eliphaz compares it to the vine losing their grapes before they're ripe. Or an olive tree shedding their blossoms before they have a chance to bloom and become fruit It's his way of saying, there is no fruit in the future. Again, it is a jab. It is a punishment. It is a cruel, cruel thing. Because guess what? All of Job's children are dead. This is Eliphaz's way of saying, you have no future. All of your children are gone. All of them are dead. Eliphaz is pointing directly to what happened to Job. He is accusing that he too will become the victim of an early death. Because he's stripped of his children. He's stripped of his his health. And he's stripped of his wealth. Just like the grapevine has been stripped of its fruit. And the olives stripped of their blossoms. And number 10. The wicked will be barren. They will live fruitless lives. Verse 34. For the company of hypocrites will be barren. Think. Think. For the company of hypocrites will be barren. Who's the hypocrite in the speech? Job! Why does Eliphaz believe that Job is a hypocrite? Because God rewards the righteous and the innocent and he punishes the guilty. And number 11, the wicked will lose his wealth That's chapter 1, verse 16. Eliphaz refers back to the fire from heaven, maybe the lightning that, that consumes the tents of the wicked. And so when he talks about consuming the tents of the wicked and the fire and those who love bribes, scholars are split whether or not Eliphaz is accusing Job of bribery, but clearly he's accusing Job of deceit and clearly... What wasn't destroyed by the wind was destroyed by the fire. And so Eliphaz is basically saying God's taken everything away from you because God rewards the righteous and he punishes the wicked. You know, this. In verse 34 and 35, look what it says. For the company of the hypocrites will be barren, and the fire will consume the tents of bribery. Verse 35, they conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb prepares deceit. That means the life that they live as a result of their wickedness. You know, this is be a good time, because we're coming to the end of our study but this would be a good time to ask a different kind of a question. I want you to think about it for just a moment. Why do you suppose Eliphaz and the others are so convinced of Job's guilt? Why do you suppose that is? Why are they so completely convinced of his guilt? Why won't they give Job the benefit of the doubt? Why won't they admit that Job's suffering might somehow be linked to some other issue or some other reason? What do you suppose that is? Look at how Fiercely, Eliphaz holds on to his views. Look at how unkind and unjust and harsh and argumentative. Look at how horrible his attitude. Look at how deeply offended Eliphaz is by his words. Why do you suppose this is? I'm going to suggest something to you. Could it be that Eliphaz is threatened? Could it be that his worldview is threatened? Could it be that if God rewards the righteous, if God protects the innocent, if God punishes the unrighteous and guilty, one of two things is happening. Either they are right or Job is right. Both can't be true. In other words, is it possible that one of the reasons why they are threatened is because what they really believe about God isn't true? What they've held on to their whole life isn't really true. True. Now remember, remember, Eliphaz came to help Job. He came to comfort Job. But something has happened. If Job isn't a sinner being punished by God, then that means that their understanding of God is wrong. Again, Chuck Swindoll says, but that meant that they had no protection against personal suffering themselves. If obedience is no guarantee of health and wealth, what happened to Job might just happen to them. What do you say to a person who says, if you're hurt, if you're suffering, if you've experienced a horrible tragedy, then you must have done something wrong? Why do you say that? Because God rewards the innocent and the righteous, and He punishes the guilty. What if I said to you, That the entire goal has changed. Eliphaz isn't interested in comforting Job any longer. Eliphaz is desperately trying to hold on to what he believes is true. Haven't you ever wondered why people are so mean and so angry and so bitter and so disappointed with you when you say, No, I believe God is good. God is just. God is holy. No, I believe that Jesus loves me, and I believe that he died on the cross for my sin. I believe that if I trust Jesus as my Lord and my Savior, then he'll cleanse me. He'll wash me. He'll forgive my sin. He'll cleanse me, and he'll give me a place in heaven. Do you realize that when you say that to people who don't believe that, you're threatening them? Because if what you believe about Jesus is true. If what you believe about God is true. Then it could very well be that what they believe about Jesus and what they believe about God isn't true. Job's friends faced a terrible dilemma. Either they were right and Job sinned and was getting what he deserved. Or they were wrong and that sometimes the innocent do suffer. And the righteous do suffer. Or Job is suffering from some unknown, unpredictable reason. That we don't understand. And there you have at least one possible reason for this speech. If they were right, they could remain secure in their belief. That if they're good, if they refrain from deliberate, willful sin then they can be happy and they can be healthy and they can be blessed. But if they're wrong, then maybe what happened to Job could happen to them. They could lose their family and they could lose their property and they could lose their wealth and they could lose their possessions and they could lose their health. Think about what Eliphaz has done. In order to hold on to his worldview... Job must be unwise, verses 1 through 13. Job must be guilty, in verses 14 through 16. Job has to be wrong, in verses 17 through 35. In his commentary on Job, again, McKenna suggests that Eliphaz is the classic example of someone who's arguing from what we might call a deteriorating orthodoxy. In other words... Eliphaz has to hold on to what he believes. And he writes, quote, first you defend what you believe, then you defend why you believe, and finally you defend how you believe. Isn't that interesting? That's what the unbeliever and the make believer do. They have to come up with an argument that the representation of God can't be true. In law school, we're taught if the law is in your favor, argue the law. If the facts are in your favor, argue the facts. If neither the law or the facts are in your favor, just argue. Is <laughs> the revelation of God. And the testimony of the New Testament in Eliphaz's favor? The answer is no. Can a true believer suffer? Experience pain? Heartache? Loss? Did God ever promise that the righteous would never suffer? Or ever experience persecution? What exactly has God promised? Clearly, he's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He's never going to allow a trial or a terrifying circumstance that he won't make a provision for. The Lord will strengthen us. The Lord will bear us. He will lift us up. And he will walk with us. But remember, 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 remember Job. He's listening to these bitter, cutting, hurtful words. He only has three things his innocence, his integrity, and a complete commitment. That trusting that God knows what he's doing. Even if he doesn't. You see, this is why this book becomes so interesting. Okay, that's chapter 15. Oh, we're done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, again, we thank you and we praise you and we glorify you. Lord, we pray that you would awaken in our hearts a profound sense of your love. Lord, we pray that we would once again appreciate mystery. Lord, we pray that we would confess that we don't know everything about everything. And sometimes things that happen to people that we love tests us and challenges us. Lord, sometimes when we read the Bible we understand that there are things that we believed and things that we used to understand that we can no longer believe and that we must abandon. That if what the Bible says is true about God and if what the Bible says is true about Jesus and if what the Bible says is true about salvation and if what the Bible says is true about heaven and about hell, Then perhaps what I believe about heaven and hell, about God and Jesus, may need to be changed so that it conforms to what the Bible says. And again, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. We pray that we would be open, that, Lord, we would be willing to be instructed by your Holy Spirit and by the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.